Hey, it's Jeff. Thanks for downloading this podcast. And do yourself a favor to hit the subscribe or follow button on your podcast app so you never miss an episode. Come on, let's go to the Blue Hotel. I want to live at the Blue Hotel. Welcome to the Blue Hotel, the podcast with the open mind. We're on episode three, which is the same number of big, deep breaths we like to take to calm the fuck down and get in the frame of mind to enjoy conversation about pleasure and about relationships and how to best put them together to make your life better. So let's breathe in the air. Three big, deep breaths. Here we go with a big breath in. And out. Second big breath in. Ready? And out. And finally, one more big breath in. And out. Okay. So to start, there's this. I stumbled upon it on Instagram and shared it on our Blue Hotel podcast page. It's a quote that goes like this. Dating nowadays is impossible. No one's really single. We're all in like six imaginationships, two situationships, and we're hung up on our ex. And then, of course, there's me doing the math on all that, and my mind wanders to uh, you know certain images of certain people. And then I send a reminder to myself, quite literally. I went to my email and sent myself a reminder. It's almost a mantra, really. Find a partner, a deep well, someone with whom you can connect beyond with a level of respect and understanding and admiration, which is important between two people, and celebrate each other and uh, fuck like infernos. And that led me to what I call a story starter. I wake up in the morning and usually I grab a pen and start writing a sentence or two that'll lead me to another erotic bedtime story, not unlike the one that I'll share here with you as the climax to this episode. So this morning started, though, a picture of black and white photo He's sitting, she's kneeling, they're naked, facing one another. Her belly's kind of pressed up against his hardness. And words to go with that I, you know, wrote for the image. The intensity, the closeness. Mostly, though, I craved her above me, knowing she would drop down on it, and then the world would feel right again. So let me tell you about the theme this time. And that thought that uh, no one is really single. We're all in these imaginationships and situationships and maybe hung up on an ex. I want you to think in terms of how you feel when you go to bed at night and how you feel in the morning. And if you kind of feel yourself feeling the same way at night and in the morning, day upon day, you have to kind of look in the mirror and think, what is it I want? And what do I have? And what's the state of that thing I have? And is it fixable? Or is the fix required within you? But here it is, the thing that really leads to this week's theme. It's an adage that uh, I kind of subscribe to, have for a long time, and it says this, you get what you settle for. And I'm not saying anything's perfect, or that happily ever after is a guarantee. And while sometimes I know it might feel like it chooses you, it's up to you to decide if this is also of your choosing. And one more thing, consider this, that the mind operates in probability, the heart and the soul in possibility. Now let's get to our special guest. 
did it right at the Blue Hotel. I did it right at the Blue Hotel. My guest this time is yet another strong, confident, empowered, empathetic human who has to her credit an array of attributes and accolades and intentions. A global speaker, a clinical sexologist, psychotherapist, cannabis educator, CEO of the Everyday Goddess, igniting women to elevate their confidence and relationships through radical self-love. She imparts skills to activate great sex relationships, and self-confidence. And you know what else? She's been featured in fashion and Cosmo and Vice and podcasts, now including this one, The Blue Hotel. She's also the best-selling author of Love, The Women's Guide to Not Fucking Settling. Welcome, Carlin Costa. What an (laughs) intro. That was excellent. You make me sound really good. (laughs) Well, you are really good. There's so much to cover. That could have been a seven-minute intro with all the things you've done and all the things you're interested in and all the things that uh, you hope to do. Yeah. (sighs) It's good to have you here. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited for us to talk about all the things, sex, love, rock and roll, not settling. You know, we've heard that for a long time, but it's easier said than done, this idea of not settling. And I've got my own ideas about why people do settle. Impatience is is, is one of the things, but mm. you tell me, why do people settle for what isn't ultimately good for them? Well, I think you, you hit the nail on the head with impatience, for sure. I think impatience is definitely part of the equation. But I think the reason why most people settle is because they don't believe that they're worth anything better. Self-worth is a huge part of it. And do you think that everyone's even aware of that hurdle? I really, really don't. You know, I see people who in their early 20s, you know, they want to fall in love. Everybody gives you, you know, the Disney fairy tale. It's like fall in love, have some kids, white picket fence, build a life together. And that sounds really nice because the idea of doing it alone or the idea of being alone really scares people. But the problem with that is that people don't recognize that being alone doesn't necessarily equal lonely and doesn't necessarily mean that you are without community. And what people like to do is instead of kind of being accountable for their own lives or wanting to explore life for all of the possibilities, they say, hey, biological clock is ticking. Let's get this done. And, uh, and away we go. And then, you know, I, I see people, they get married in their, in their 20s, especially in their early 20s. I'm seeing a big influx, actually, of patients of that right now. And then they're coming to me in, like, their 40s, 50s, and they're like, whoa, I missed – I've missed everything. I've missed all of life. And then they're talking to me about dating again. And I was like, okay, I need to teach you how to date again because it's not like it was in the 90s or the 80s or even the early 2000s, you know? But people get this, like, you know, they romanticize it. And I get it. The biggest thing I got from therapy was the observation on the part of the therapist that I idealized women. And at first, I, I of course, you know, you're, you're, you're younger and, and, and less open to criticism, observation, really. And I thought, no, I don't. And of course I did. And I did again and again and again. And it's this thing, partly impatience. Um, it's this thing that says, 
she said, really like to have a partner. And, uh, and you pick someone based on what a picture or, a, or, or a view across the room and you start, um, assigning all of these wonderful attributes you'd like in a person to that person that you don't even know. Mm-hmm. And, and then, and then slowly you discover that the attributes you assigned don't exist in that person. And, and and why would they? What a foolish bit of idealization a lot of us do. And then eventually you're not together. Mm-hmm. And who do you have to blame but yourself? Right? And we don't put <laughs> enough emphasis on getting to know ourselves. Right? Like and I think it that's starts also, there, doesn't it? Yeah. Tell me more. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Because what you said is so true. We fall into this like idealization of like who our partners could be or who they can be and their potential. We fall in love with potential, right? Which is like the worst way to fall in love. And then we not only fall in love with the potential of them, but then we fall in love with our potential. And we start to get into this like really kind of backwards being like, well, if I'm with you, then I will become better. Instead of saying, I'm great, let me find somebody to match me, to compliment me, to do that work. Carolyn, it really speaks to something (laughs) I heard years ago, and I liked it. It was actually from a woman that I was seeing, and she had worked on this, and she was quite good at it. She Mm -hmm. said, you know what, In in these times of not dating, in these times of healing from one that went astray, be the person you want to be with. You know, you want to be with someone who's, uh, you know, responsible and intelligent yeah. and ambitious sure. and and adventurous and compassionate and all those things. You go be that and be yeah. prepared so when he or she comes along, you're ready. Exactly. More exactly. ready. Exactly. <laughs> More ready. Readier. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that you said about uh, possibility that always strikes me as an important mm. word. So, so people are alone, potential, not necessarily lonely, but the ones that are alone and feel lonely, mm. it's sometimes I think, and COVID certainly made it a little more challenging. They're without that feeling of hope and possibility, which gets you into trouble because you. You lower your standards to have mm. something rather than nothing. Absolutely right. It's it's you know if you're starving, you'll throw anything in your mouth. <laughs> there, <laughs> right? And yeah. and dating can be a lot like that. Dating <laughs> and uh, and being in that realm can be a lot like that. You know, I recently did this like post that I really loved actually um, because I love to spend time on my own. I really do. I love my own company. I date myself frequently because I am always changing. I am always growing. I find myself to be fascinating, you know, and that's, that's my radical self-love. That's like, because I have seen myself and I see myself through all of the traumas and dramas and the seasons and life lessons and blessings of my life. And I hold myself with respect and an honor and I feel like that's kind of the mark that people miss. And then when we get lonely, loneliness is a symptom of externally seeking validation, of externally seeking in general. To heal loneliness is to actually turn inwards and to start to know yourself and to start to date yourself and to start to face some of your own limiting beliefs, to face some of your own um 
your own personal transgressions, to learn what self-compassion is, to forgive yourself for who you've had to be, who you've needed to be, who you will become. We get excited about other people and we stop getting excited about ourselves. And that's why people get lonely. And tell me this, Mm -hmm. if you don't do that work, and if you don't forgive yourself, and if you don't end up embracing yourself and loving yourself and seeing yourself in this positive light, what are the things you take into that relationship? Codependency. Codependency, trauma bonds, that type of thing I see over and over and over again. Because that's, that's unfortunately that missing piece. When we give all of our power to another person. And we may give it with great intentions and that person may even receive it with great intentions, right? But you fall into this idea of like, you make me who I am. It's a lot of responsibility to put on somebody else to make them the source of your feeling of goodness. And that's why, you know, let's let's see if you want to go here. But... (laughs) (laughs) that's also why we have a big problem in relationships with this idea of uh, non-monogamy, with cheating, with affairs, with emotional affairs, physical affairs. The reason why those things happen is because we're not doing the work and is because we come into this space of ownership in our relationships. And then we see, you know, our partner flirting with someone and we're like, oh, they're crossing a line. Oh, they're betraying me. I see my partner flirting with someone and I was like, yeah, baby, he's still got it. You know, like, (laughs) yes, he does. Because he's coming home with me because that's the security of our relationship. And I hope he uses that energy and that flirty juju, you know, that he got juiced up for on me. And those are spaces to be negotiated within relationships, right? And that's where the codependency and the trauma bonds really um, derails relationships and stuns people is because people forget that relationships are an ongoing negotiation, that they're an ongoing conversation. You know, I have a couple of best friends who've been married for like 20 years plus, and they say to me, they're like, you know, I'm happily married. I love my partner, all of those things. But wouldn't it be so great? If marriages went through like a five-year, 10-year renewal, it's like, here's the contract. Here's where we've been for the past five years. How are we doing? You know, where are we going? Do we still want to stay in this? And like, no problem if if we come to the conclusion of no, but but are people actually having those conversations? Or are they just assuming, hey, you married me, you made this promise to be in this relationship forever through all the things. You know, you know what that sounds like? That sounds pretty damn abusive to me. I'm not gonna lie. And you can correlate it, I think, pretty closely to you have a job and your boss hires you and you report to your boss. And, you know, in the first few weeks, oh, things are going well. Oh, that was really great. Oh, oh, try to do this a little differently. And and you get to a point where everything seems to be going well. And then what? You never talk about it for four years. And then suddenly, in the meantime, the boss and his bosses and other people are noticing that he didn't do that thing very well for four years. But no one says a word. And then year five, you're you're let go. And you're Mm -hmm. thinking, I thought everything was going well. How about 
let's sit at the same table first before we assume what we're eating, you know? Some people say, oh, it shouldn't be this much work. And, and well, if it feels like work, then maybe you're not doing it well. But you have to have these conversations, if not daily, then every week. And, mm. and I don't think this is a bad thing, and I want to know what you think. Mm. People have attractions to other people, fantasies about all kinds of scenarios. It's my belief that the best way to deal with that in a good, healthy relationship that's not codependent is to share some of that stuff. It actually benefits the relationship. It kind of disarms the thing. I have always said that fantasies are oftentimes better left in your head. And the advantage is that, well, you're safer and you're still together, but you've shared, it's an intimate thing to share what you're feeling and thinking and desiring. People get so afraid to share what's on their mind, especially when it comes to fantasies and exploring. You know, if you really want to be adventurous, then you have to be adventurous not only in the physical being of your space, but also in your conversations. And being able to allow yourself to mature and, and grow and understand that you can you know, some days you like chocolate cake. Some days you want vanilla. Some days you want a little caramel swirl. And that's okay. I tell, I often tell my couples that I work with, use those fantasies. Use that energy and bring it to your relationship. You know, if you got hots for teacher, talk about it with your, with your partner and start role-playing. Start having some fun with it. You know, if you see somebody sexy on the street – who is beautiful because the human form, especially women, are just pe- walking pieces of art, in my opinion. If you find something attractive, tell your partner because your partner wants to hear it. And a good relationship allows that space for us to be able to meet our partners in that romanticism, you know, and in and, and that sexuality and in that fire and in that passion. I love that. And not only that, we don't have to conform or we don't have to adopt the things that are in the fantasies of our partner, but it is kind of fun to listen and to understand and to give them some of our own. And if something doesn't feel right or something isn't clear, you're like, oh my God, I can't believe that he or she just said that. Talk about it. Get to know the person in the context of sharing and it'll get better and better and better. It's just communication really more than anything. Well, absolutely. And in those conversations, the great piece about some of those conversations is that they are extremely vulnerable. And I find that any space that we can be safe and vulnerable in our relationship is always a beautiful opportunity to grow closer to one another. Uh, That's that's the combination, isn't it? Vulnerable and yet safe. So you'll do it again. You'll share it again. You're not afraid to share it. They're not laughing at you. They're Mm -hmm. not ridiculing you. And you're not doing those things to them. Yes. Because in that space, that's where self-discovery, like the beauty of self-discovery can happen in community with your partner. I mean, this is why I'm a therapist. This is why I love therapy and talk therapy is because when you start talking, you start to uncover aspects of yourself that you may not have known before. So you can say, hey, babe, you know, like this is kind of turning me on and I'm kind of hot for this right now. 
you may discover something within yourself that may lead to a whole conversation that you didn't know, that may even uncover past traumas that you, you know, that didn't you didn't know that you do need to address, or it may uncover new potentials and new sexy and lovely things, new adventures that you may want to take with that partner. And that's why I love that space and encourage people to share those conversations in our relationships. I have a question for you. Do you think men settle more than women? More? I think it has a lot to do with the dating pool. And and just yesterday, I was speaking with someone. We both live outside of the GTA, outside of Toronto, outside a major urban center. And it's her observation that in these smaller communities, um, it's way tougher for, for, for women. So they end up, by virtue of that, having to settle because of the numbers game. It's like, there's no one to date here. It's like the same nine guys. And, <laughs> and you guys have such a variety of women to choose from. So by numbers alone, that would mean that women are settling more. What are your thoughts? I mean, I live in Toronto. There are more numbers here. But I find that it also increases that energy of desperation a little bit because people, I don't know, this is my first time dating in Toronto. I've only lived here for over a year. I find that people, because there's so many numbers, that people either cycle through really, really quickly because they're just like, oh, it's it's like, what am I trying to find, right? And they're just like trying to find and trying to find things or... They're like, man, I've been passed over so many times that like I'm ready to put a ring on anybody's finger, you know? <laughs> it, it, I've noticed that both of those things actually happen here in the city. So it's interesting. I think demographics have a lot to do with it too. You know, our age, um, my age, I can't speak for you. You're mm. younger than I am. <laughs> but there is that, that feeling, uh, you know, after I was 45-ish, I felt the mortality um, that you don't feel when you're 20 and 30. You feel you're going to live forever. And, and you don't really feel that. You just don't think about the alternative. You don't yeah. think about the fact that you're not. David Bowie once said when he was a couple of years younger than I am now, he said, Jeff, you know, what I'm doing now is looking at the number of years I think I have left mm-hmm. and the things I want to do. And then prioritizing those things so I can fit them all in. And I thought that's a really practical, sober-minded, in-touch-with-mortality kind of viewpoint. And I think some of us, certainly me, because I was seeing someone and she was giving me breadcrumbs, which I'd like to talk to you about in a minute, Mm -hmm. only for a, a year, and I'm making a joke now, only for 12 months she was breadcrumbing me. And because I was committed to the idea that maybe she would reach around with both arms and, and lean in, that that was better than going out and starting again because maybe I'm too old. So that's a bit of a settling too, isn't it? You're like, I'm oh. not getting much, but it's better than nothing. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And like the older that we get, you know, I, I'm almost 40, not quite. I got I got less than a year left. <laughs> We're almost there. And, and I, and I do find that, you know, I do find that there is a little bit of that, like wrestle with mortality kind of thing starting to happen. It's like, Oh, where am I at? What do I get to like, what's, what's happening here? And it's, it's a sobering experience I find, but I also find that dating is way more fun now as I'm aging. Anyways, I find that dating so much more fun because what people are looking for 
shift significantly as we get older. You know, it's less about like, do you have a tight ass and more about like, do you have shared values? Right. I mean, you know, the cute butt helps, but like it's, it's more about like, do I want to talk to you for the next 20 years that, you know, well, that, um, that leads that leads me to something that uh, is 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 not remotely politically correct, but it, it it makes me laugh. Probably saw it in a movie that was out in the '60s. The idea that the perfect uh, relationship was the guy who has bad sight and the woman who has bad hearing, because he's invariably <laughs> going to say some stupid shit. And, <laughs> and and we're all getting older, and and our ass is is going to sag at some point. <laughs> but you are right. I mean. The conversation is important. I, I had a friend in the, in the music business, a, a great Canadian drummer, and we all marveled at how he um, picked the most gorgeous-looking blonde on the face of the earth and married her. And then, you know what? He admitted that beautiful, but we don't have anything to talk about now in our 30s. What are we going to do at 65 and 70 and 80? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there has to be an attraction, I think. There has to be more. I say if the first if the first kiss doesn't hit, it ain't it, you know. Uh, and and I and I I stand by it. <laughs> oh gosh, although although let's let's talk more about kissing, uh, okay? Because you a bad kiss is a bad kiss is a bad kiss. There are those kisses that have a little bit of hope where you can go. I think there's potential here for a better kiss and you can grow into some incredible kissing. No, I I stand by it. You know, I've been dating, I've never been married, so I've been dating for a long time. And, uh, I, I've learned that. I've just learned that about me. If like there are, you know, I kissed a guy a a couple weeks ago and it was like, there's room for growth here. There's room for improvement. I'm an excellent kisser. I'm not expecting everybody to be at my level. But you're trying. I get it. And then I yeah. kissed a guy like a month ago and I was like, oh, no. On paper, you look really great. On paper, we get along. We hang out. I'm like, yeah, your company's not too bad. But I don't want you in my mouth. No, nope. no matter what else is wonderful, if the kissing doesn't work, forget about it. I mean, it's it's the greatest lubricant of our lives in a relationship, a sexual relationship, it's great yeah. kissing. I mean, you can do that yeah. for a half an hour. And by uh, the time you go further, you're out of your mind. Jeff, they make songs just about kissing. You know what yeah. I mean? Like like making out. That's what I, I – also another thing that I love about getting older is that people come back to like the subtleties of sexy, you know, which is like let's just make out for 20 minutes. And like it doesn't have to be any more than that. If we want it to be more, that's great. But if we don't want it to be more than that, it's okay. And everything just kind of feels more intense. I also find that as we age, especially in, with women, that women really do, we we really do hit our like sexuality in our, you know, as we get closer to 40s, in our 40s. I really do. Like I'm looking forward to my 40s because like I'm a juicy woman and I cannot wait to be juicy. Like, like I'm so looking forward to my forties because we just, I don't care about the things anymore. And I do want a good kiss. And I do want to spend time just like talking about ridiculous things and great albums under the, you know, the sky and the stars and just having that connection. 
It's, it seems to me, as it relates to age and the different eras of our lives, yeah. by a certain age, oftentimes, certain pieces fall into place, whether it's career, certainly it's understanding of self. You know, this growth has happened, and, and you've become, not to quote David Bowie every time I open my mouth, but, but he said, you're young, and you're becoming, and you're trying, and you're growing, and you're learning, and you're experimenting. And one day, all of a sudden, you have become the person you were meant to be. And that's a wonderful place, because then you can go, oh, here's how I feel. Here's what I need. Here's what I want. Let's get together and, and, and explore this on a date or as a couple. And, and the pressure is off, because you've kind of hit all those other goalposts. Now you yeah. can focus more clearly and more confidently. Yeah. You know, I, I, in working with people, individuals, you know, I've been a psychotherapist for 10 years now and doing this work, I really do think that the narrative shift of like, find someone in your twenties, have a couple babies. If it works, cool. If it doesn't work, move on and get into your juicy like end of your 30s and 40s with the right partner that you do want to commit to you know like find someone you want to procreate with and then find someone that you want to like commit to i guess sometimes you know <laughs> and i know you're not being flippant and suggesting for a second that younger people don't have the hope that maybe it will last however you know, we connect the dots in reverse often and we look at numbers and we think, you know, 50, 55% of people end up in divorce. It's not the end of the world. You've come through, you have another chance with your new growth and your new understanding of self and the world at large to give it another shot. The marriage that ended is not a failure. There it is. It, don't see it as a failure because that can be debilitating. And, and you can, you know, fall into that, you know, that chasm that is shame and regret. You take the learning and you move on and, and you try again. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And, and, you know, the, the idea of monogamy and marriage forever, you know, that was historically built as a way to control women, right? It was a way to control procreation. It never about people are supposed, humans are supposed to be with the same person forever, right? It, it was always about powered control over women and procreation. So when you look at it from the actual historical and socioeconomic context of that, you could have some compassion for the fact that relationships are allowed to shift and they're allowed to change. And so are you. So that's why, you know, when people do talk about divorce and, and they're like, you know, should I move on? I'm like, yeah, sure. Why not? Try it on. Sometimes you get back together. Sometimes you don't like, but there are 7 billion people on the planet, 7 billion. And you're deciding to stick with the one person for, I mean, like, that's pretty courageous. I'm going to say. When people break up, I have two things for them. And, I, and, and a friend of mine sort of taught me this 30 years ago. He goes, you know what happens when people break up? Here's what I tell them. And when he said it, I thought, that sounds a bit harsh. And now I understand his context and his intention. He always says, I'm sorry to hear that. And congratulations, because that speaks to possibility and hope for the future. It's not the end. It's not like, oh, my God, what are you going to do? It's, wow, 
you know, I'm, yeah. I'm sorry for the feelings you have of, you know, whatever your feelings are. I'm sorry for those ones, but I'm excited for you. Yeah. And that's what I say to people. Seven people billion on the planet. Think about a 50-50 gender. We'll just go with that, right? <laughs> so then of that, three and a half billion are of the opposite gender, I mean, or of a gender that you want to date or both. Hey, if you're, if you're pansexual, bisexual, then you're open to all the possibilities. Of that, that's still about two billion, a billion people that are open for you to connect with. <laughs> Those are odds I would bet on. You know what I mean? I do. Well, let me share something with you, just because it's in the perfect context of what you just said. A lot of people who are bi don't come out till much later, yep, and, and often much later than a gay person would, man or woman. Mm -hmm. And and one of the reasons they don't is they still would like a relationship, an intimate one with a woman. They have an interest in people of the same sex, the fear is that they won't be accepted by women in their life if they're men who are bi. Traditionally, speaking of the, 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 the way to keep women down and the way to stereotype them and the way for men to fetishize them is that, you know, when women are bi, oh, it's wonderful. And somehow some of the guys think that, oh, that might give them an opportunity to be with two women at once. Sure. My wife's going to bring a girl home for me. Yeah, they say but, that, then they can't handle it. <laughs> well, that's a whole other theme, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Jealousy. And, uh, but to open up, like you said, the numbers game, to be by is a wonderful thing. And, uh, and when I came out, what I discovered was, finally, that actually there are a lot of women who are turned on by it, accepting of it and ready to embrace a person that is. Then the negotiation comes, how are you going to act out on this? Are you going to be loyal to me? Are you going to see guys and me? How is it gonna work? That's a whole other conversation. Yeah. But just the acceptance of it, yeah. and, and w without, without pushing you away, when I discovered that it was okay with more than not, mm -hmm. it, was, uh, it was an epiphany. It was a feeling of great freedom and a feeling like I'd lost a lot of years being so worried about something that didn't come true. Yeah. And Jeff, you know, here's a, here's a fun little statistic for you is that a majority of straight women watch gay porn because that's what turns them on. Right now, I'm I'm not a straight woman either, so I am I am in your classification. We need to go out dating together, Jeff. We'd have a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> there is so many possibilities, and that's also what is included in the conversation about not settling, which is that there are possibilities, that there is potential, and that you are not limited. Relationship should not mean limited relationship needs to mean growth, activation, elevation, possibility, potential. And, and like we spoke of, I mean, you end up negotiating how you're going to do this thing. We have agreed to what we have agreed. Fine. Yeah. Great. Communication. Sure. But if the default position is getting into this relationship is going to stop me from doing all these things I'd like to do, is that a great idea? And the answer is probably not. So yeah. know what you're getting into. Don't yeah. fucking settle. Yeah, don't fucking settle. Absolutely. <laughs> Actually, Jeff, I have a question for you just because, you know, we touched on it. So now I'm a little bit curious mm -hmm. because as, you know, as two queer people having a beautiful conversation right now, yeah. um, when you came out, did you find 
that the queer community actually like do you fit sorry let me rephrase that actually do i do find you, that i was accepted by the queer yeah, community well yeah like did you find any <laughs> friction about it right That's like you're funny. talking about straight women being open to it but how about the queer community it's funny i remember very distinctly right now and you've brought it up and i'm, I'm glad you did i'd come out to the closest of friends in my early 30s and publicly a few years ago in, in a couple of podcasts but I remember distinctly before being out publicly, um, going to a dinner party with a, with a couple that I know who have a lot of gay friends. As it turns out, they're just they're just wonderful to be around, and everybody wants to be around them. So the parties are always at their place. So this particular party, I see one of their gay female friends, and uh, she was never cold with me, but she was never particularly warm. And she looks at me and she says, "Uh." I saw you on Church Street the other day. I don't know what you were even doing there. Yeah, she knew sure. me as a man who had a girlfriend. Sure. And, and, I, and I didn't know how to respond other than, uh, that doesn't seem very nice. <laughs> well, yeah, like, like why, how, is, well, how are we gatekeeping like, people? Right? Yeah. Also, why are we throwing on heteronormativity as the norm? Thank you. Right? Why are we blanketing everybody as heteronormative? And it happens still, and, and you know, more than anyone, the bisexual community gets that sort of stigma attached to them, yeah. which is unfair, yeah. but it is changing. There's, the conversation's been greater um, than it's ever been before and only getting better. Um, I think that if you accept yourself when people throw that shit at you, mm. you can handle it better. So now I'd be like, I just laugh and say, well, the church street's fun. Why wouldn't I want to be there? Yeah. And why would yeah? And why wouldn't you want more people there celebrating? Right, the idea yeah. is inclusion. Like the whole activism and advocacy of the LGBT community is about inclusion. So yeah. why would we exclude hetero people from the conversation? Also, I also go like live my life thinking that everybody's a little gay. I'm not going to lie, you know. <laughs> I, I do too. If you're really, really honest with yourself, there's a there's a part of every man, you know. I've talked about it before. The number one thing that uh, people call you in the schoolyard as a boy who just throw out words they don't even really understand is gay and cocksucker. Yeah. I'm like, if you can find me a man, and I don't care what country you're in or what religion you're in, who hasn't fantasized about guy on guy. Everyone has to be really honest about it. Doesn't mean they're going to go and do it, but if you haven't thought about it, uh-huh. you're a liar. You're uh-huh. a liar. <laughs> uh-huh. I agree with you completely. You might not be a Kinsey six, but a Kinsey two is looking pretty good these days. You know. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. You know, Laura Desiree was on episode one, and uh, Sabrina B was on episode two, and uh. gay porn and Kinsey and 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 a lot of these themes at non-monogamy consensual non-monogamy mm-hmm. come up frequently they seem to be at the at the top of the stack in in the conversations that we're having around sexuality well especially after the pandemic so you know now we're in a post-pandemic world before you know i think we used to talk about post-recession 2008 and then we went you know post 9-11 and the post-pandemic world dating is different relationships are starting to be different. And I'm hearing so many more people come to sessions, come to therapy sessions with me or coming to conversations with me and talking about opening up their marriage, talking about consensual non-monogamy, talking about different ways that they can explore in that way. And I'm really excited about how people are, are going in that direction. I think it's so fun. I'm excited for you in the work that you do in um, 
in therapy, psychotherapy and analysis and um, skills. You, you teach people how to be better at, at having relationships and how to be better at having a relationship with themselves. Yeah. It's also a bit daunting and a bit scary because it goes back to what we talked about earlier. You've got to have a really great understanding of self. You've got to be really balanced in, in who you are and how you handle relationships. Mm -hmm. Jealousy is something you have to have a really good understanding of, what it means, how to deal with it. And communication would be the biggest of them all. This is an area in which if you're going to step outside of the traditions of a heteronormative and monogamous world that was imposed upon us by... <laughs> The church, the patriarchy in the church. <laughs> uh, if you're going to step outside of all that, you know, I'm not suggesting it's a bad idea, but walk carefully and mm -hmm. communicate and, and things can go very wrong, but they can and also I, go very well. Oh, absolutely. And I highly recommend if people are looking to explore non-monogamy in their relationships, that they do it with a therapist, a coach, an educator, a somebody that they feel close to. The narrative of that world is, is very vast and it's very vulnerable. And you can't just say, hey, I'm going to just start going to go date other people and you're going to be okay with it. You know, it's, that's not how, how that works. And, and I've been monogamous. I've been non-monogamous. I've been in both of those types of relationships. And then I, I support my patients through it. And I just highly recommend that people, like you have to do the research and I highly recommend that people find the support for it as well. A therapist, a qualified therapist like you mm -hmm. and others who are not only many well-versed from a book smart perspective, but well-versed from actual life experience perspective. Mm -hmm. One of the books that I started with is, uh, is The Ethical Slot. Oh, and, yes. Uh, and that taught me so much, gave me so much understanding about how to proceed if that's the road you want to go down. You need to do some reading. You need to do some, um, you need to educate yourself and get educated by somebody who knows what they're doing. Uh, tell me about your book and, and, and some of the central themes of it, the book about getting what we settle for. Love, The Women's Guide to Not Fucking Settling. This is my first book. I'm actually currently writing my second book, which I'm really excited about. And this book was my introduction into authorship. It's also a reclamation of my space and of my space that I take up in relationships. You know, kind of the central theme or the vein of my book, you know, I was in a relationship that I thought I was going to try to be in it forever. We, we had the house, we got the dog, we didn't get engaged or get married. We were starting to talk about kids, all of that kind of thing. And it turns out that everything I wanted was nothing that I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> everything I thought I wanted was nothing that I actually wanted. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 so dig into that. What, what are a couple of things you, well, all those things, the dog, the picket fence, the baby, the, yep. all that? Yeah, all of that stuff, you know. What, what did you really want? Oh, what I really wanted was uh, acknowledgement and validation and firm boundaries and forgiveness and permission and to take up space in my body, in myself, in my emotions. I wanted safety. 
I wanted to heal from a lifetime of trauma. I wanted to find myself. And that's why I gave that relationship, you know, the good old-fashioned college try. <laughs> Carolyn, tell me this. How much of the responsibility is on the other person? And that's a lot of stuff that has mostly to do with you. Yeah, The things absolutely. that you needed. Exactly. And that's the point of the book. <laughs> the point of the book is to be able to look at all of our relationships as lessons, as opportunities for growth. And to not put it on them. It's to take it back onto yourself. So there's exercises in the book, self-reflection exercises. I actually have a therapy program that goes with the book because we often do that. We say, well, he didn't show up for me. He cheated on me. And actually, this partner did. He cheated on me multiple times. You know, And I, I used to say, I, like, who cheats on a sex doctor? Well, I found him. <laughs> but I, I don't blame him for it, right? Like, not anymore. Anyways, you know, I've done the work. And it, and it's because of that idea that I also was lost too. And we were trying to find ourselves without doing that work within ourselves first. We were trying to find ourselves in each other and not within ourselves. And that's essentially the whole point of not settling is that it starts with you is that it starts with not settling for who you are and your identity and not getting stuck to not get caught up in the snapshot of who you think you are and to be able to be open to who you get to become. Back around to that full circle, becoming. <laughs> there it is. Well, I, I, as you're saying that, I'm thinking to myself, you know, there, there's great learning and listening to, to what you have to say, and that you don't really have the right to effectively assess, judge, yeah. judge and assess someone else's uh, value in your life until you have sorted out your own shit first. So when you come to the table, kind of self-realized with an understanding of who you are, then you can more soberly look at who this person is, this potential mate, however you want to, mm -hmm. and, 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 and look at them with, with, with a clear mind because you're intact. You mm -hmm. kind of know where you are in this whole thing. Sure. Now you can say, where are they in this thing? Does this work for me? But until you got your own shit figured out, how can you be judgmental about, or how can you effectively assess anything? You know, I, I made this TikTok that was all about cheating. And I said, affairs and cheating are symptoms of an incongruent relationship. And the backlash I got from people who were like, no, it's not. It's because they suck. It's because they're <laughs> horrible. It's because they're narcissists. Now, narcissism is a real thing. Absolutely. Have I met narcissists in my life? Absolutely. But have I also met people who have been nurtured to perpetuate narcissistic qualities? And not having sex or having sex, cheating, the regulation of sex is the symptom of your relationship. It's the barometer and a measure of health, I find, in your relationship. And that's not to say if you don't have a sex life, you have a shitty relationship. 
you know, not everybody wants active sex all the time. Not everyone is as sexy and turned on and in their libido and aroused all the time, but some of us are. And that's also okay. It's also okay the other way. But sex is a symptom, and that's the point. When we need to place blame, and, and, and you know, the person that cheated, that is going yeah. against, assuming that they decided totally. they weren't going to be with others. So that's totally. wrong. We get that. Yes. But when you, use, when you assign non-congruence to something, that takes it away from the blaming part of it and says things just weren't balanced, operating in a way that could prevent that from happening. Each person might have needed to do different work. Each mm -hmm. person might have needed to communicate better with one another. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, though, placing blame doesn't help anything. It's the understanding we walk away with that actually makes you more prepared for the next one. Whether you were cheated on or whether you did the cheating, there's so much shame. It's like people want to shame the cheater. And I, and I get that. You're upset. But the cheater is also going through his or her own personal hell, unless they have no soul and no conscience, yeah. they need to recover too. There's two people that are really hurt in this situation. And you know, you want to you want to rouse a conversation. You just start talking about cheating and affairs, <laughs> like that. If that is not a symptom of an unhealed self in how people respond to that. You know, that's how I often say, so how do you feel? How do you feel about, how do you feel about cheating? Have you ever been cheated on? How do you talk about that partner, right? How do you do those things? And there are wounds there, absolutely. And we give a lot of trust and vulnerability and in relationships. So it's not to not acknowledge the wounds because the wound is real. The wound, the, the breaking of the safety is also very real. But I find that people don't often cheat because there's something wrong with the partner. I find that people often cheat because there's an incongruency in how we relate to one another and how we communicate and the safe space within the relationship and then within yourself. Well put. Back to communication and understanding <laughs> and self-awareness. The best knowledge is self-knowledge. Mm. I mean, how can you hope to move forward until you've figured out your own thing? I like this. Take a breath. Love yourself. Own your orgasm. Take yes. the power of your pleasure back into your own hands, uh, literally and figuratively. <laughs> Tell us more. Tell us more about that. That's uh. juicy. Yes, it is juicy. Own your orgasm. The most frustrating statement I think that someone can make, one of the most frustrating statements that someone can make to me when we're talking about sexuality shared amongst two consenting adults is, well, I don't know if I want to see them again because they didn't give me an orgasm. <laughs> How about this? Can I reframe that to what yeah. I think might, and you can assess my uh, understanding. Yeah. We haven't gotten to a place where we understand what it takes to fulfill one another's needs as it relates to orgasm. Obviously, he wasn't quite sure or she wasn't quite sure um, how to talk about it. And the responsibility was put on somebody else for your pleasure. Exactly. And that's what I say to people, right? Nobody gives you an orgasm. 
Baby, you give yourself permission to share that experience with somebody. My orgasm is a like is living artwork. Like I love seeing the face of a partner when I come to orgasm because for me what I'm saying to you is I feel safe. See me in my most vulnerable state. Witness my power. Feel my energy. Share in this awesomeness with me. Because I let you in. I directed you. I am the captain of this shit, babe. You know? And I'm going to teach you and show you how to steer it. How to help me steer it. Because I want you to learn. Right? An eager lover, an eager partner who is like, let me know you, is the sexiest thing. Oh, my goodness. That is the sexiest thing ever is to have that. And, and that's, you know, that is what owning your orgasm is all about. It's saying that this belongs to me. This is my body. This is my pleasure. And you get the honor to witness me and my magic. And you're welcome. <laughs> yeah. But and vice versa. I mean, yeah, the openness to to the experimentation that leads to the understanding of how to really make it explode mm-hmm. more than once. Sometimes one of them first, sometimes the other first, sometimes together. I'm, I'm an old-fashioned person, ladies first. Once mm-hmm. I grew up and, and, and understood that that was way better for everyone involved than having a simultaneous orgasm. And, and the pleasure in that is beyond for yeah. many of us. Yeah, it right? really I is. mean, this is like, and, and you know what? When you get really comfortable with one another and you really understand one another's sensibilities, a mental state and physicality, you can choose. It's like a menu item. Baby, let's come together. And and or baby, you go first. Or no, or, or or I don't need to right now. I just really want to see you do it. I mean, these are great conversations. The verbalization in the moment. I know there I talked about this in the last episode. There are people that don't talk while fucking. And that's that's okay sometimes too. There's no wrong way. There's yeah. no normal abnormal. But it does open up a lot of possibilities when you can communicate in that moment. Yeah. Talking during sex is a must. Well, there. (laughs) You said it. Yeah. Also, owning your (laughs) orgasm means that I don't always need to have an orgasm. And that the goal of sex is an orgasm. Owning your orgasm is about recognizing that I get to own my pleasure and the journey of my pleasure. And sometimes I want to come and sometimes I can't, I don't want to, but I don't have to deny myself connection with another person. And because of that like pressure to perform, pressure to orgasm, you know, and especially as we get older, you know, I'm seeing a lot with with my male partners, you know, with with men that I, I meet, that sometimes they have like erection problems and they're starting to have, and I'm like, babe, it's okay. You still have hands and a mouth. Like, like those things are going to be really, really great. And we can also just be here 
we don't we don't have to get to some goal post. Like you know, we're not looking to score anymore. And if it's a Saturday, you know, and you wake up and you do what you do, and then you know you're going to see each other a little later on the same day, you can have different sorts of sessions. <laughs> I'm going to hold off on coming, honey, mm -hmm. because I want to save it for later, and uh, and we're going to take care of you together now. Or you're going to do it yourself, and I'm going to watch. There's so many different ways of enjoying it. Absolutely. And. Uh, it reminded me of another little story. I relate <laughs> everything back to music, and I know you're a huge music fan, and yes. I want to ask you about that in a minute. But here's one a friend of mine. She said that she uh, dated this rock star for a while, this you know major rock star, and he would only come to town where she lived you know, a couple times a year on tour. Uh, but he would he would have days off, you know, between dates, and he would spend them with her. And she said he had this 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 way of being a lover that um, he would fuck her all day, off and on, but he would always hold off uh. until you know the, the the session they had just before bedtime, so that he could properly sleep because he was so used to the highs of a show that he you know his his body didn't allow him to sleep until five a.m. Mm. If he wanted to sleep on her schedule, go to bed at midnight. He really needed to take God's sleeping pill, as it were, and come like a racehorse. Mm -hmm. um, but she loved it because all day he would satisfy her or help her to satisfy herself. And then and then at the end of the day, ba-boom. Oh, that's, see, and that's a pleasurable life. Right. You know, that is someone who looks and says, I deserve to feel good. And that's also what owning your orgasm is, right? It's it's that reclamation of I deserve to feel good, and I can express that in a whole day. Is that rocks are single, by the way? Like, as I could, <laughs> I could use something like that. I'll just say. You know, no, I, I don't want to give it away. And, and, no, and the, most interesting, the most interesting part of the story would give it away. So I, yeah. I'll hold that. I'll hold that till my dying day. Um, but again, all that too is 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 coming back to communication because you'd have to have conversations about that. Otherwise, yeah. it's why don't I make you come or why don't you? You know, th there'd be all these assumptions. That's the one thing we need to shed too, other than shame and dishonesty is uh, is assumptions about anything. Yeah, the the, the the assumptions that we make about our partners or our potential partners can be debilitating and, and, and relationship ruining, can't they? Oh, absolutely. And especially, you know, the number of people that I have to teach what their bodies can do and how they work. You know, the, the number of women I have to, and men, but, you know, I work, I work with men and women, but I do work primarily with, with women. And the number of women that I have to say, teach them to say, you know, just because you're being penetrated, that doesn't mean you're going to come, right? Like, like uh, penetration doesn't mean orgasm. Do you know about your clitoris, right? Do you know? And like, you know, teaching people about that information and opening them up to knowing what their bodies actually can do. And when we go into the space of saying, I deserve to feel good, it not only translates in our sex life and being able to live these, you know, juicy, delicious days like you, you mentioned, but it also translates into our mental health and wellness and in our relationships and community and how we hold space for all of that also. 
and saying, not only do I deserve to feel good, but everybody deserves to feel good. And that can look like healthy boundaries. That can look like safe spaces. That can look like downtime. That can look like eating the chocolate cake because it's fucking delicious and who cares how many calories it is, you know? (laughs) And that's the kind of life I like to live. Frederick Nietzsche said that Mm. without music, life would be a mistake. And I know your connection to music is not a passive thing either, Carlin. Mm -mm. Um, Tell me more about your connection to music and how somehow it relates to relationships and sexuality for you. Well, I am a musician, so I do play the piano. Um, Sometimes the shaky egg, you know. (laughs) I have both of those things in my house. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I try. I tried to play the guitar once. You know, I had a roommate in university um, who plays for a really great Canadian band, actually, and he tried really hard for like the whole year to teach me how to play guitar, <laughs> and I just couldn't. Like, I don't know what it was with my fingers, but piano, piano for sure. I love to sing. I love to just like be in music, and as a woman of pleasure, as a woman in her pleasure. Some people would say, as a well-fucked woman, music is one of the ways that we can arouse our senses and one of the ways that we can really invite pleasure and create or nurture spaces. I had a really great, I'm going to just tell you this, a really great night. A few weeks ago, because I've discovered stoner rock, by the way. I've discovered stoner rock. I I didn't discover it. I've just been given the title for it. I didn't realize what it was with stoner rock. And what is this band that I've decided, like, I'm just kind of obsessed with it. And now I need to tell you about it because I had the best sex. (laughs) Oh, all them witches. Have you heard of these guys? Man, just this, like, this epic music and you just you know you put it on spotify you put on the playlist and you say go and the music just has this really great way music can bring us into those altered states of consciousness that things like mushrooms and cannabis and mdma and all those really great psychedelics can also bring us to but breath work and music can also bring us into that right can bring us into high states of arousal and and connection breath work music and fucking i forego all the all the psychedelic stuff yeah because i'm like sex is enough i mean mm. if that's not the greatest high on the face of the earth i do not know what is <laughs> sharing those feelings those emotions those sensations those nerve endings with another person and 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 coming to you know wow mind-blowing really and then having the ability and taking the opportunity to play music to think about the music you want to play either they do or you do or you both do or you can surprise each other and it can be it can be stoner rock it can be the most heavy and hard rhythmic funk it can be you know i often cite massive attack on one hand it can be really driving and mathematical but but passionate and then on the other side of that something is kind of mellow and calm and and artistic as a roxy music i mean there's a million ways to slice that and they can all really work sex is art music is art Mm. the two combined makes for one of the 
I don't know, greatest experiences that we could have? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Like <laughs> a great playlist is everything when you're getting it on. You know, yeah. I, I, I like I find it actually hard for me to have sex without music. Like I it like it it gives me a rhythm. But I also like write to music. Like I always have to have music on in my life, in my ears, in and around my space. I just I like having a soundtrack to my life, you know, and sex is no different. And it just, it helps us, I find, get out of our heads a little bit more and into the groove, you know, get into the feeling of it. And that's why I like music, make playlists. I make all these playlists for people to have sex to, (laughs) which is so fun. (laughs) And you've posted some of them, have you not? Where can we find some of your playlists? Yeah, just just on Spotify under the Everyday Goddess. I'm there. Yeah. The everyday goddess, Carlin Costa. Oh, and you know, the other thing, variety is everything to do with all things, including sex and music. And so you, you, you know, you plan this, this evening or this afternoon or this rendezvous with your lover and you have a playlist and that's great. But then there's that time at, um, and I always said this to partners, there will never be a time unless I'm ill physically where you can't wake me up at any time of the night mm-hmm. to, to, to fuck. Anytime you, right? <laughs> I will I never mean, be upset about being woken up. Just do that thing. And that's a really nice time to have that silence at the dead of the night and for someone to, you know, touch you and you mm-hmm. get that sort of indication that it's time. Mm-hmm. And, or the morning sex that's so wonderful. That can be quiet sex. Yeah. But that makes the time that it's not quiet all the much more adventurous. Absolutely. Intense. Absolutely. Those 4 a.m. fucks, that's when you become the music, right? Good God, yes. Those, the breathing, the oh, darkness. Oh. <laughs> and that, those are the best. Like those, that's the best. Also, my favorite lovers are all musicians. You know, I'm not going to lie to you. There's something, we just learn how to use our hands in a way <laughs> that non-musicians don't, don't know how. <laughs> you know, people used to say to me, you must have uh, dated a lot of uh, musicians. And I'm mm. like, no, I worked with them. I kept it really professional. So that didn't yeah. usually happen Yeah. Um, often. Um, certainly not in the context of when I worked for a label, I was just there to work for them. Yeah. But, um, it's funny to me and, and maybe you've got one that you can think of, uh, without naming names, but where people wouldn't believe that that person that you've been with was such an incredible lover. Mm. Some people surprise you, don't they? They don't fit what other people would assume they're like. Um, some people quietly exist and 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 their heart and soul and their expertise and their skills and their passion comes out in the bedroom and you wouldn't have known it. Oh, absolutely! And they're almost always musicians. <laughs> <laughs> How come I knew you were? Gonna not, say yeah, that? yeah. You know, I'm not gonna lie. I have I have a bit of a soft spot for uh, for drummers. <laughs> it's just it's my thing. I like them. <laughs> it's uh, I don't know. It's that beating that 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 constant rhythm thing. I think that gets me going. <laughs> well, the fact that I'm a drummer is is not lost on you. Oh, there um, we go. I didn't know. Yes, I forgot that. <laughs> so we should. We should do a night out where we go out and and, and have a laugh and, oh. uh, and 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 view the world and compare stories. Yes. And you should come back and talk more about music sometime too. 
Yeah, I would. I would love to. I would love to come and talk about music. You know, music is the spice of life. It's the flavor of life. It's you know everybody wants a soundtrack. That's why you know. All great love stories have a soundtrack, right? Titanic and my heart will go on. Uh, you know, pretty and pink. Notwithstanding. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The psychedelic furs and like holding up like, you know, a stereo outside somebody's door. Like every great love story has a soundtrack, has a song. Every wedding, you know, that's why you have your wedding song. Music and love they just and, – and relationships and sex, they just – it's the same, you know? You're either making love with your bodies. It's just another way to use your body to create rhythm and energy and to share that with people. Sometimes live concerts can be almost orgasmic. The, the feeling, the mental stimulation, the physical stimulation even somehow can be overwhelming and memorable. I don't know if you've got one, but I think back to being late 90s, Varsity mm. Stadium, Toronto, and mm. Rage Against the Machine were playing. Oh. And it was the heat of summer. And, and, and it seemed like everyone was on fire. There were a lot of couples. And I remember being there alone. I think I got a ticket last minute. I thought, I can't miss out on Rage. I'd, I'd seen them before and I needed to see them again. Yeah. And it just felt like the room was pulsating. And it was musically but the bodies in the room were doing the same thing. And that's that shared energy, right? And Because that's the power of music, the power to bring us into congruency with one another. Getting fingered at the concert, even if it's the Backstreet Boys, you're here for it. You're like, it's fine. I mean, I never, the Backstreet Boys, <laughs> I wouldn't want to have sex to them. But like, you know, <laughs> I saw I saw Jesse Reyes in 2017, I believe it was. And that, and she is, she is just a walking energy. Or um, 2016, I saw Lido Pimienta. She was like five feet away from me. And I saw her and like I've been obsessed with her ever since because <laughs> the emotion that she brings through her music. And, like, and these are you know Canadian singer-songwriters who are just incredible women who bring this emotion and energy, this rawness, this – you know, you want to be part of it. And that's what music does. It makes you want to be part of something. Okay. If not fingered at a Backstreet Boys concert, maybe you've got another one. <laughs> you, you give some thought. I'll tell you one. It was late 90s. It was Lenny Kravitz uh. at um, the docks. And I was seeing this girl and we were on fire. And uh, we couldn't wait. We just couldn't wait. It wasn't dark yet, though, because it was summertime, you know? And, and then the concert started well before it got dark. So there was light coming through the window. But the docks had these big, plush, red velvet. I think they were red. That's yeah. my memory, anyway. Yeah. My revisionist memory. Yeah. Curtains hanging down to keep the light out. And we, we snuck in back of there. And we had each other's pants off. And we were just getting going. This bouncer, security guy, I don't know, maybe he heard us. <laughs> maybe he heard our pants dropped. Maybe he heard my belt hit the floor. Yeah. <laughs> and he came back and he and he almost kicked us out. And I said, hey, hey dude, chill. We'll, we'll, okay, we'll put our we'll, clothes on. Yeah, we'll wrap it back up. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but just hearing the music mm. and, uh, and, and being so close to the speakers yeah. and just being so desperate to, to fuck long before we got home. What a feeling. Mm. What do you got? 
Yeah, what do I got? Ooh. <laughs> you know, when I was younger, I used to just like hang out with so many like local bands. I'd like host Battle of the Bands all the time. I I, I loved doing that so much and like, you know, pseudo managing bands. I'd lo- I did that in my early 20s. It was so much fun. So, you know, I got a lot of like local small band kind of music things. And then I saw Silverchair at Government in Toronto. When was that? Oh, I was young. And that my whole body, you know, I remember I went with like my crush and it was like a group of us. <laughs> and like you just, you know, you, you 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 hit the shoulders together and it's just like you're feeling all of this stuff and such a time. Right? It could be so heavy too. That song, Pure Massacre. Oh, yeah. Oh, I loved that band. I worked with them. I was on the label. Yeah, oh, they were amazing. Such great kids when they were like 16, 17, and they were driving golf carts around our uh, Sony convention. And then they played for us at three in the afternoon in, a, in an auditorium um, at a resort in Muskoka. Stop. And, and half of the room was like, oh my God, what are we watching? And the other half that included me were like, Oh fuck! What are we watching? This band's gonna blow up like crazy, mm-hmm. and they did. And they did such a good time. You know, I also remember throughout my life, like doing some deep healing work with music. And the power of music is that you get to taste someone's soul, and that's what I love about music. That is the best way I can imagine on a musical note in a conversation around self-knowledge and sexuality to, to say thank you, Carlin Costa. Well, thank you, Jeff Woods. I appreciate you. <laughs> thank you so much for having me on. What a great conversation we had. We did a ride at the Blue Hotel. We did a ride at the Blue Hotel. told me about what she called the unzipped fuck, but it was something she'd do sometimes in between relationships. It wasn't about Mr. Right so much as Mr. Right Now. The unzipped fuck, she insisted as her gaze wandered to the window and her mind got lost in a memory. Closing her eyes, she slipped away to a moment of being taken the way she liked being taken best, from behind, fully penetrating her physically, but mentally not quite. There was emotional distance that comes with the unzipped fuck, she'd explain. She'd say, pull harder. He gripped and pulled upon her hair, and harder still upon her commands. And she dared him to thrust as hard as he could, too, because for her, the unzipped fuck was meant to challenge the body, to push the heart right, to open the throttle up all the way. She delighted in his enthusiasm to please her. He plastered her some more, and she reveled in the sound of his body slapping her ass and the tension of his arms, one gripping her left hip, and the other, if not tugging her hair harder, was grasping her neck tighter. She liked lots of points of contact beyond the fullness of his cock inside her. The unzipped fuck. No drinks beforehand, no cuddling after. It was a bit of an out-of-body experience, truth be told, and it suited her fine. Sometimes. She told me stories like that that got me worked up and led to us fucking too. Ours was a semi-zipped fuck, it turns out, because we were those friends with benefits. Our bodies just worked together. And when we met up, there was no expectation beyond the benefits of friends who loved to fuck. And when we did, there was no stopping until somebody had to get ready to go do something responsible. And so I looked it up. 
She might have misquoted because it appears in print as the zipless fuck, a phrase coined by Erica Young in the book Fear of Flying. The zipless fuck defined as a sexual encounter so pure, absent of a power game, free of ulterior motives, free of remorse, and free of guilt. The so-called perfect one-night stand. (laughs) Fuck me, but sometimes you just want a stranger to take you away from reality, to do every filthy thing you both want to do. Just one time, never to be seen again except invariably in your memory, when suddenly you look out the window and there it is. So I've got a friend, he's bi, and he tells me about his unzipped fucks all the time. And he tells me how bisexual men, and women, but mostly men, get marginalized by the gays as being not ready to come out yet. That somehow their desire for the opposite sex isn't real. Well, he has this visual loop that for the vast majority of his waking moments plays in his head. Technicolor scenes, split screens of dirty dreams of bodies bare... Men taking women and women men. Two women, one man. Two men, one woman. Everyone taking and giving. And it reminded me of the expression trisexual. When you'll try just about anything at least once. He identifies as fluid or pansexual. Citing his openness to sex simply as a matter of what makes his cock hard. And it could go either way depending on the day. And who was in plain sight. It's been said there's two times when a man is most honest... One, right after he comes, and two, awakened in the middle of the night when his imagination is raw and unbiased and intuitive. And in those moments, he was as likely to crave the wetness of a woman as he was the hardness of a man. Sometimes better still, simultaneously. The sensory overload, especially when the rhythm of the thrusting sinks up in a way that makes all three lovers come. If not at the same time, then one after the other and a symphony of moans and screams he loved so much. Still, his unzipped fucks were usually one-on-one, but sometimes. On this night, he walked into the back bar where the DJ was spinning old-school funk, and he sensed eyes were upon him. And in his limited view, in the corner where the lights were dim, a couple... He loved coming here once in a while because it was the kind of place where nobody really bothered you for being you. And anything could happen. Grabbed a drink, wandered toward the back of the room amidst people chatting and others dancing. The pair in the back corner were perched upon a ledge and they were looking at him. She was actually sitting, legs dangling. He was leaning next to her. His hand on the bare part of her thigh between the top of her stockings and the edge of her short skirt. Beyond which he guessed was an exposed bush. Underwear can be sexy, but access is everything. It's amazing what my friend can imagine in the first five seconds of approaching someone. And just then, the guy grinned and nodded in a way that invited. And so the three made introductions, and she, with her Cheshire cat grin, was pretty sure this was someone with whom they could play. So he too leaned upon the edge, so that now she was flanked, with her man's hand still on her thigh. Both men turned inwards. My friend just wanted to watch them interact for a bit and see what was about to unfold. Not that there was a lot of small talk. She said, we couldn't help but notice you look like you're out looking for trouble tonight. He laughed at the way she put it and said, trouble just kind of finds me. And yes, I'm definitely out. And down, for fun. And then she parted her lips and lifted her head and immediately her boyfriend looked to my friend and politely nodded and then moved his body that much closer to hers and kissed her. Not for long, but for real. Like he was sealing a deal. And the signing bonus was their new friend. 
and then Boyfriend's hand slowly slid up her thigh and his other hand onto the bareness of the other leg, and both hands lightly gripped just above her stockings as the tips of his fingers extended well out of sight. You're making it wet, she declared. To which he said, good, you're making it hard. And then the couple looked to my friend, as he confirmed, very hard. And they glanced down and he wasn't kidding. His cock actually appeared trapped, straight down his right leg. Its head was a dead ringer for the one beneath the right pant leg on the Rolling Stones' Sticky Fingers album cover. By the way, that's not Mick Jagger's cock, but somebody from Andy Warhol's New York City gang. Perhaps another unzipped fuck. The boyfriend returned to her mouth, her tongue coaxing his to stay a while. Then he pulled one of his hands from beneath her skirt and tasted her on his fingers. And then the moment that really set the tone for the rest of the night. Her own fingers slipped under her skirt, up and inside, and then back out and into their new friend's mouth. It seemed trouble had found them, and it tasted really good. This little game of follow the leader continued as boyfriend pushed up into her with two fingers and then a third and pulled them out and slid them into her waiting mouth, and she sucked. And now it was the new friend's turn, and she told him exactly how to do it. Now that I'm opened up, take three fingers... Slide them inside me and count to five. And so he did. Slowly up and in and he held it. And she reached down to his wrist. And pulled his hand up. And put his fingers in her mouth. And she loved her own taste. And then the elephant in the room. Not that she hadn't sensed what they were dealing with. But she asked anyway. So you like girls? How do you feel about boys? Which confirmed what her boyfriend thought about the idea while new friend had one word as a reply, let's. Now, this wasn't a couple who took new friends home. They took them to play at the Palms, spanning three floors of a century home, remodeled into a place from which you can check out but never quite leave, because what happens there stays with you, with its rooftop swimming pool-sized hot tub and playrooms of all sizes everywhere. She rose from the ledge on which she'd perched, stretched her legs, and decisively led her man and their new friend out of the club and into the street. The mid-evening air was warm, and in minutes a car pulled up, and into the back seat she climbed, legs spread, the width sufficient to place one foot left, the other right, of that bump on the floor where the drive shaft runs through from the front to the back of the car, and flanking her again to the right, her man, sitting proud and feeling good, and to the left their new friend, happy he'd left the house that evening, and her educated guess was that his cock was on fire. She knew her man's would be, and to confirm her suspicion, she reached right and gave a little grip upon boyfriend, who was facing north as usual, and her other hand went down to the friend's right leg, where the evidence from earlier presented itself as proof that he was still raging and it was still stuck facing south in his pant leg. She felt the outline of his head and circled it with her fingernails, as her other hand gave a tighter grip to her own man's stiffness. He was dying to let it free, but in a lady's first gesture, instead he let his left hand slip between her thighs, and his fingers once again found the inviting puddle. And just then her eyes met the driver's eyes in the rear view, just long enough to see the look of a woman with her hands and her pussy full. Just drive, she said, as she lifted her head in a playful, mind-your-business motion. The car made its smooth ride across town, and as the two cocks throbbed, and her hole gently got finger-fucked. And just like that, they were there, 
the familiar palms, marking the place they'd go about once a month together, and once in a blue moon with a friend. A new friend had only heard about this place, but was rarely in the city on weekends. The couple led him up the laneway and through the gate. Up the stairs they climbed, single file, to the second of three floors that overlooked the pool. One, two, three lockers, side by side. She purposefully took the middle one, new friend and boyfriend, left and right. The two men stood back a bit and watched as she unbuttoned her top and slipped out of it, revealing her favorite bondage bell open-cup-framed bra that did exactly what it claimed, framed her full breasts with three straps left and right, and a gold O-ring dead center, providing access to the mouth of a lover without having to take it off. Put off it went for this place. And she dropped her skirt, revealing the space between the stockings and garters for the first time. And then she unhinged and peeled back those and kicked off her heels, and she was bare and beautiful and ready, towel in hand to go put herself into hot water. And for fun, they wrapped themselves in their towels, which made her laugh at the bulges that no towel could actually conceal, out the door, onto the deck, and toward the row of outdoor shower heads, beneath which they rinsed, found a spot to hang the towels, then proceeded down the steps and into the shallow water, and down the sloping bottom, until the deepening water prompted breaststrokes towards the backside of the pool. And that's where, side by side, they perched themselves on the bit of ledge that jutted out, she with calves tightened on her tiptoes, the warm water comfortably beneath her chin. And there they clung, feeling the soothing sensation of the water and letting their imaginations simmer a while. Then the urge to feel skin on skin prompted Boyfriend to slip behind her and press himself against her, his rigid cock between her legs, its head just touching her lips. He let his legs dangle and his hands gripped the edge of the pool, gently raising and lowering himself so his cock would nudge itself inside her just a bit. His weight against her back kept her from having to hold on with both hands, so she dropped her left hand down to check in on new friend's state. And it was as it had been since she first spotted it beneath his pants earlier, thick and long and rocket-ready. She felt like she needed more room and freedom to move her body where her mind needed it to be, so she said, let's move back a bit. So they stroked their way back to where she could just touch bottom. Still, they were at a distance from the others who were chatty as if they were at a cocktail party. She put her back to all of them, and boyfriend and new friend assumed their positions, now facing her right and left giving her access to both cocks, which she gripped and tugged on, pulling on their tips, tugging at their balls a bit, doing it at the same time in the same way, so she could see the reactions to the movements she made on both men's faces. And then she felt hungry and found her boyfriend's mouth and they kissed, as her hands tightened around both cocks. His new friend liked watching the passion she had for her man. It made him throb even more. He craved her tongue for his own mouth, and she knew it. So she gave it to him next, but just for a few seconds. While there was no way she would deny herself the discovery of what another man's mouth could do to her, her priority was always her man first. Instinctively, he repositioned himself directly facing her and nodded for the friend to get in behind. Now she was sandwiched, and what she wanted she took. After widening her stance to make room, she reached down with left hand to one cock right hand to the other, and put them both at a 90-degree angle between her thighs. Now they were pushed up against her lips side by side. Had they not brought a guest to play at the palms, they'd have surely fucked in the water. 
And while it wasn't entirely frowned upon for people to do that, it was something you did rather subtly. It was a pool, after all. And so it was time to head back inside. Heads would turn toward the site that was her dripping wet body, leading her two tall, lean men, cocks straight up toward the shower, for another rinse and a towel dry and a return to the second floor. She led the pair up another flight of stairs that led to the big room. Their eyes adjusting to the muted light spotted the leather seats and lounges and beds, randomly situated, it seemed, islands under themselves, on which couples mostly played, some on their knees, some were standing, some were riding. Any position one can imagine played out in the big room, where those comfortable getting it on in front of anyone got down. Over there, in the middle of the room, one beside the other, with about two feet in between, black leather twin beds, to which they went together. And these beds, like all the various furniture in the big room, had a red line painted on the floor, in a perimeter surrounding them. That way those who liked to watch had to do it from the distance between the beds and the red line. Crossing the line was by invitation only. She stretched out on her side on the first bed, suggested her man sit on the end of the other, in what some people call the king's chair position, and she said, I want to watch. And instinctively, new friend got in position and stood looking down upon what was soldier straight. Her man was throbbing and his cock dancing in that way cocks can do, in a rather inviting way. And in one motion, new friend dropped to his knees, reached for and gripped the rigid shaft, and she said, hold it. He said, oh, I'm holding it. She laughed and explained, I want an unobstructed view of your mouth working that cock. Put your hands behind your back and keep them there or I'll tie them. And with that, his mouth already watering at the side before him, his lips went down and around the bulging tip and he tongued what pre-cum had flowed since they'd rinsed their bodies by the hot tub. Sticky and sweet, he looked over at her, licked his lips in approval, and then he went down further, about an inch below the head and back, and then two inches and back, and then three, and then four, up and down. And he kept that depth up for a while, because four inches was easy to go as hard as he wanted, and he wanted to go hard to make that cock throb some more, get him good and worked up. Boyfriend was feeling the tightness around his cock. It felt like the clamp of a tight cunt and he was amazed at the strength and the stamina of his new friend's mouth. Boyfriend looked over at his woman, whose grin had returned, and she was taking matters into her right hand, her left index and fuck-you fingers rotating lightly on her clit, then picking up on the couple's mutual approval for his cocksucking skills, new friend responded by going deeper. Five inches, and then six, and then seven. Then he had all but a bit of the nearly eight inches hidden between his lips, and he was pretty sure he could make him come when he wanted. But that wouldn't be right. Ladies first, after all. So he stopped and he stroked it a bit by hand. And that's when Boyfriend made the executive decision this time to take his woman by the hand. Three abreast they headed towards the staircase and left. That's where red plush curtains were pulled back, left and right. And two steps led them up into an enclosed, raised red leather bed with square mirrors on one side and on the ceiling, which wasn't really high, just high enough to kneel at most. They laid themselves down, she on her back in the middle, them left and right facing her. Their combined smells filled the small room and it felt good. Boyfriend leaned in, kissed her mouth, lightly pinched her left nipple. He took it and tongued it and sucked it and gripped it with his hand and kept sucking. 
and then he glanced at New Friend and signaled him to do the very same on the other breast. Now both of her tits were engulfed by hungry mouths. And then Boyfriend let him stay on her tits while he reached up to her mouth, and they kissed deeply and only stopped together to focus on the sight below of their new friend straddling her body to gain access to both tits. And after a while, she knew it was time to reward him for all the sucking he'd been doing to them both. She said, sit down, lay back and relax. So he did, and she crawled her way between his legs, parting them a bit wider so she could comfortably fit both knees just below his, and she dropped her head onto the tip of his cock, and it made him feel the way she'd seen her man feel in the middle of the big room. And boyfriend got in behind her with his mouth and tongue working her ass. Fingers on her clit. She loved the way his thumb pushed between her lips and stretched to reach her G-spot. She didn't have to think or say. He knew exactly how to please without distracting her completely from the job at hand. Both hands, it turned out, had her mouth working her new friend's cock, sucking like the queen that she was. Her mouth was as his had been, like a clamp. And the really good news was her having no gag reflex so she could make all of his inches disappear with ease. And she sensed that the sounds he was making with the deep and tight strokes she was giving that it was more in her control than his when the load he'd been carrying was going to explode. She kept stroking his cock by hand and she lifted her head, turned it a bit to the left and back, and said, baby, I need you to fill me. Boyfriend spat between her cheeks and let it run down and along her lips so that his shaft would easily glide. He started working her in and out. She happily resumed working on new friend's unwavering shaft, and she knew that if she looked into his eyes it would make him crazy, so she did. And boyfriend grabbed a handful of her hair, going with the flow of her head bobbing up and down on his cock. It was rhythmic perfection, a symphony of moans and exclamations about God and fuck and yes and harder and... She was the first to reach, and her arching back made Boyfriend explode inside her as she reached up to find new friend's nipples and squeezed and sucked and clamped down and sped up faster and faster until he came with the force of ten men, shooting all over her tits and her neck, and then both men collapsed. And she did what she'd been doing all evening, positioned herself in between, as they all caught their breath. And for the very first time, they noticed a quiet crowd had assembled just outside of the entrance to the Red Room. Show's over, she said. Now, let's go for a swim. Come on, let's go to the Blue Hotel. Please take me back to the Blue Hotel.
looking to make the most out of this life and optimize your personal wellness? Then check out the Natural Man Podcast. Join me, host Mike C., as we explore all areas of human wellness, physical, mental, and emotional. Learn strategies to optimize your own well-being and be in the driver's seat of your own health. Remember, your doctor works for you. Learn biohacks, neurohacks, ways to improve sleep, and ways to optimize your body and your mind. Check us out on Apple, Spotify, the Fountain app, and at naturalmanpodcast.com.